Um, we've talked a lot on this show, and I, I keep you know bringing this up over and over and over because I think it's important, more important than uh, we might know, and that's uh, the situation with China and how it positions itself uh, globally and the, what they do to Canada. I mean, we, just think of the examples of the way they've pushed us around time and time again, and we've seen pretty impotent in responding. Um, so one of the guests we've often spoken to about this is Charles Burton, who is a senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute um, and a former diplomat at Canada's embassy in Beijing. And we've typically talked with Charles about the fact that Canada is pretty impotent. We don't seem to be doing much in response to China's outright bullying of us and others on the world stage. But he wrote a piece in the Globe and Mail last week saying um, Ottawa is finally taking the China threat seriously, which is a big change in the rhetoric that we've, well, not the rhetoric, but the discussions we've usually had. So I thought, let's get Charles on and find out what's going on. Uh, Charles, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. It's always nice to chat. Good to speak with you, Shay. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is a departure, right? I mean, it's something that you and I have both talked about and said, boy, we really hope the Canadian government has a change in position when it comes to China. What are you seeing that makes you think, well, okay, wait a minute, maybe they're finally getting serious about the threat that China does pose? Well, you know, we did come up with this Indo-Pacific strategy, um, pretty aspirational document, but, you know, it's it's really about how can we reset with China I think that, you know, the strategy having come out and the pressure that we're getting from the United States to get into line with the U.S. and Australia and the U.K. and come up with a with a policy on China that has substance, not virtue signaling, is such that even though I think there are still enormous constituencies in the halls of power in Ottawa who you know, are still very beholden to Chinese interests and would like us to just continue to virtue signal. And, you know, we issued that policy, so we clicked that box and let's just keep doing what we've been doing all along with, you know, saying one thing to the United States and our allies that we are serious about China's threat. And on the other hand, reassuring the Chinese that nothing's going to change and we won't be cracking down on their malign activities in Canada. But those days are are rapidly drawing to a close. And I think, it, you know, of course, it's because we're getting pressure from the United States, sure. from yep. Secretary of State Blinken when he was in Ottawa in October. And uh, Minister Jolie issued a statement saying that uh, Blinken had engaged on Indo-Pacific a couple of days ago with regard to the uh, Three Amigos Summit. But, um, you know, there are very good Canadian reasons why we should be protecting our security and sovereignty. And I think within the Liberal Party, you know, if not the cabinet in the back benches, there is a consensus that we just can't keep going on like this. So maybe I'm a bit too cautiously optimistic about, you know, the shift that it's actually real and that Canada will finally start doing the right thing and start arresting agents of the Chinese regime in Canada and bringing them before our courts and expelling Chinese diplomats who are coordinating espionage or harassment activities or bribing, in effect, bribing Canadian policymakers. But, um, you know, it still remains to be seen. And the government is going to be issuing a clarifying document on how they're really going to implement this strategy. We'll see what that looks like. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, I looked at the comments on my piece in the Globe and Mail on Friday, and most people are skeptical that our government is actually going to do what yeah, they promised. Yeah, I think so. 
<laughs> and with good reason, Charles, because like you say, it's very yeah. aspirational. It's a lot of this government has a good track record of talking the talk and then not necessarily walking the walk. So uh, the talk is there. Now we need to see if the walk follows behind. Exactly. You know, but I, I just think that that the the the, the discourse is shifting and China is becoming so blatant in what it's doing and other yeah. countries are experiencing the same that we have to change, regardless of whether it's a liberal government or a conservative government or whatever, that, you know, it's about Canada's national interest and the people who have been selling out our country to, you know, their personal gain from China are, uh, are, are you know, should be put on the run and we should start standing up for our Canadian values and interests and security and sovereignty and just telling the Chinese government we're just not going to tolerate what they've been doing anymore. You know, it's over. And you talk in your piece about the change um, in the domestic situation within China. We've seen a, you know, uh, especially around the COVID restrictions and all the rest of that, we've seen um, a, a different approach from the Chinese government. How, what have you seen there and how does that fit into this? Well, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, that government is not just on the run internationally now that we're basically figured out what they're what they're doing in terms of trying to create a new global order that's hostile to our interests and impose a Chinese dominated world by 2050, yeah. which is their audacious ambition. I, I mean, you know, whether that'll be realized, I think they're very much uh, underestimating the capacity of the U S and the rest to stand up for democracy. But, you know, domestically they, they changed their policy towards COVID the previous policy up until December of last year was an extreme policy of isolation, quarantine, monitoring, locking, you know, people in their apartments for weeks at a time if they have any contact with people who had COVID. And this kind of zero COVID policy has, you know, has been done by other countries like uh, New Zealand. It doesn't sustain, you know, you cannot prevent this virus from eventually um, getting through all the you know, yeah. political or social barriers that you put in. So, um, you know, there were protests in China in December over, um, you know, an incident in the far northwest where people were locked into their apartments, um, couldn't get out. The apartment building went on fire. The fire department couldn't get in. And, you know, people tragically died because of the policy. Well, you know, what China should have done was a gradual easing of the policy, announcing a phase out of zero COVID, um, allowing uh, hospitals to make preparations for an influx of patients and getting inadequate supplies even of, you know, Tylenol to relieve fever of people who don't get it so bad. Um, the Chinese government, because they refused to admit that anything they did in the past was less than perfect, you know, Chinese right, Communist yeah. Party is always great, glorious, and correct, basically changed everything in an instant. Um, and the upshot is that you have a huge population of people who have no immunity or little immunity to COVID. The Chinese vaccines are not that effective against Omicron. And the country has exploded with COVID. The hospitals can't, can't take the crowding. The crematoriums can't meet the demand. Um, the funeral homes can't handle it people are ill for another purpose, they can't get an ambulance. And so the result is a major, major disaster. But the Chinese government continues to say nothing going on here, no need to sure. worry. 
you know, yesterday in the news, they identified about 6,000 new cases of COVID throughout the country and that three people had died. But then the province of Zhejiang, one province of China, said that in that one province, they're getting a million cases of COVID a day. And the estimate of, you know, outside agencies that do modeling is that we're looking at something like 12,000 deaths a day. Yeah, and a million this year. We're probably yeah. going up to 25. So there's a big difference between 5,000 over the whole country <laughs> and one province a million. So, I mean, if the government is, is, is dissembling and lying to that extent, of course people are going to wonder about, like, what sort of government sure. is this? And particularly when they're seeing their elders under threat or dying. You know, this is a serious human issue and the chinese communist party just doesn't seem to get it they seem to want to let those who are going to get sick get sick get those who are going to get seriously sick get seriously sick that those who die are going to die and then they think that when the dust settles after all this that everything will be fine and they can carry on with their original policies and mr xi jinping is going to be you know head of the country for life um uh, and i i think they're underestimating the Chinese people's tolerance for just so. So, so, bad so, so what are you saying? Government. I mean, are you, Charles, you're talking about this could be the the end of the, the Chinese communist regime, or or the beginning of the end. I think so. You know, I think that. I mean, I just don't see people after this horrendous experience looking back at how the party responded in this. You know, in the way of protecting their own position by not admitting that their policies were you know, less than flawless, by protecting their own elites, by providing their limited supplies of pavilion just to the elite regime hospitals and not on the basis of need, and uh, and um, allowing the situation to deteriorate so badly. Um, you know, this whole business of the, of the Chinese government contemning Canada and other countries so vociferously for enforcing um, testing of Airplane, you know, people getting off airplanes from China for requiring a 48-hour in advance uh, proof that they've they've had vaccination or 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 um, uh, uh, a negative test, whereas the Chinese government requires a 48-hour PCR test for anyone entering China, including coming from Hong Kong. So, you know, why isn't our government saying, you know, you're you're giving us a, a hard time claiming that we are playing political games and racism uh, when we try and monitor who comes into our country from China, but you're doing exactly the same thing for any Canadians that go into China. So, you know, it's this kind of stuff. It just it just gets yeah. beyond the sort of normal way a government behaves. They seem to be panicky and, uh, and desperate to try and create an alternate reality to the tragedy of disease and death that's currently sweeping all over China and is expected to increase because, you know, the government says, seeing as there's no COVID, there are no more restrictions. Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. People will be traveling home for Chinese New Year and wait till the disease gets into the rural areas where there are even fewer supports. Fascinating. Charles, thank you so much for being here, as always. We'll talk again soon. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.